Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 70, America. Hello everyone, and welcome back. In our last episode, we began our examination of 1917, a year which brought fundamental changes to the war. As you'll recall, France, Germany, and Great Britain underwent significant leadership changes at the end of 1916. Frustrated with the results on the Western Front, Britain's new Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, looked to extend Britain's commitment elsewhere. Meanwhile, the new army heads of France and Germany implemented their own tactical doctrines. With Robert Nevel now at the helm, the French hoped to reverse the defensive doctrines of 1916 with an offensive against the Chamy des Dames. An offensive, Nevel hoped, would eject those pesky Germans once and for all. But as was the case in 1914, 15, and 16, the Germans were the ones to set the tone for 1917, and they did so by implementing two important measures. The first measure was to withdraw their western armies to the Hindenburg Line, a new defensive position that stretched from Lille to Verdun. This shortened the German lines, allowing Ludendorff to restructure the army through the creation of new reserve units for greater defensive depth. As the army withdrew, Berlin implemented the second measure, which was, you guessed it, the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare. Germany's decision to resume unrestricted submarine warfare had adverse consequences. Not only was it a major departure from the reserve naval strategies thus far, but it was also the first link in the chain of events leading to America's entry into the First World War. Now, I say chain of events because the United States did not enter the war in response to unrestricted submarine warfare. Many textbooks and general histories make this connection, but there were many other factors at work as well. Remember that the Germans made public their U-boat campaign on February 1st, and the United States would not enter the war until April 6th some 65 days later. Which begs the question, what happened over those 65 days? To answer that question, we need to pull back from our main narrative and return to the decades before 1914. In the 50 years between Civil War and Great War, the United States was going through a transitional phase, which continued to influence policymaking by the early 20th century. So for the next two episodes, we will examine the key factors leading to America's entry into the war. To do so, I've broken things into two parts. Part two will focus on American policy from 1914 to 1917, leading up to the moment Wilson signed the Declaration of War on April 6, 1917. This episode will be slightly different, and is divided into three parts. The first part of the episode is a broad overview of the years 1870 to 1914, with particular emphasis on industrialization and demographics during the Reconstruction era. The second section will feature a brief biography of President Woodrow Wilson, which will take us up to the declaration of war in August 1914. The third part of the episode will be a housekeeping note. I know it has been a long time between episodes, so I wanted to provide an update regarding my whereabouts this past year and a bit. The short version is, everything is great. I've just been busy. Really busy. But I don't want to get sidetracked, so let us start with America's road to the Great War. 
In the words of historian G.J. Mayer, the United States entered the 20th century as a young, ungainly nation, beset by growing economic pains. Over the half-century following the Civil War, the United States underwent a radical transformation, which would see the once agrarian republic evolve into an industrial powerhouse. The Civil War Reconstruction era saw an unprecedented growth in technology and industry. Led by super tycoons like Carnegie, Rockefeller, and Vanderbilt, the U.S. economy grew faster than any other in the world. By 1913, the United States outpaced Germany in both steel and pig iron production, and with a population of 100 million, there was near limitless potential. Reconstruction placed heavy demand on America's natural resources, much of which lay in the sparsely settled West. This led to an exponential growth in the country's rail line infrastructure, with the total kilometers of trackage ballooning from 35,000 kilometers in 1865 to over 200,000 by 1890. The discovery of oil and ore deposits in places like Colorado, Texas, and California ushered a mass migration into the western states. Countless Americans, including freed slaves and migrants from Europe and Asia, poured into the interior to find their futures. But while many sought their fortunes in the west, many others looked to the big cities and industry. In the northeast, places like New York, Chicago, Detroit, and Pittsburgh grew at an exponential rate, which caught urban planners totally unprepared. Between 1870 and 1920, the number of people living in major cities increased from 10 million to 54 million, while the number of cities with populations over 100,000 swelled from 15 to 68, and those with a half million rose from 2 to 12. Nowhere was the rise to urbanization more prevalent than in Chicago. Now, I had to triple-check these numbers to make sure I was not hallucinating, but according to worldpopulationview.com, Chicago's population in 1840 was just 4,470, but by 1890 had surpassed 1 million. The result of this demographic shift was unprecedented overcrowding, and along with it, every affliction that plagues modern society. Poverty, disease, crime, and tensions that occur when large numbers of people live close together. In 1890, New York's immigrant-packed Lower East Side averaged 702 people per acre. Landlords were quick to take advantage of the lack of living space by splitting up existing buildings to house more people. It was not unusual for working families with three or more children to occupy rooms usually reserved for single tenants. The conditions inside these tenements were harsh. The largest rooms were barely three meters wide, and interior rooms lacked windows or adequate ventilation. Most residents had to make use of communal toilets located in the backyards or basements. This, unfortunately, was the cost of progress. Despite land rushes in the West, rural populations went down as urban populations went up. But while the tycoons gouged themselves on lucrative contracts, the majority of Americans lived in abject poverty. For those who migrated West, life was about adapting and surviving. Although popular culture has embedded in us frontier images of fugitive gunslingers, saloons, and poker games, the reality was far less dramatic. Most people worked long hours for corporations such as Union Pacific and Anaconda Copper. Even those who worked the land, such as ranchers or agriculturalists, faced irrigation issues and inclement weather. Not to mention, an uneasy relationship with local indigenous groups, who after the Dawes Act of 1887, 
faced unceasing encroachment and hostile assimilation efforts. The Industrial Revolution and increased mechanization created a social divide which characterized the Reconstruction era. Industrialists were smart, and found ways to exploit the capitalist system to the fullest. Capital investment was the key to Reconstruction, and so state governments were willing to cut favorable deals in order to secure finance and employment. Mark Twain famously called this era the Gilded Age, during which industrial magnates such as Andrew Carnegie and John Rockefeller yielded more power than the government. In the 1880s and 1890s, the Supreme Court ruled that corporations such as Standard Oil and U.S. Steel were protected by the 14th Amendment, meaning states could not deny them equal protection or property without due process. During the Gilded Age, corporations were effectively immune from government interference. Competition suffered, while rail line, shipping, and steel monopolies took over. In 1870, America had 100 millionaires, but by 1892, that number had risen to 4,000. While the Gilded Age is commonly associated with elaborate parties and massive personal estates, it was also an era defined by progressive politics. Those toiling in poorly ventilated factories were not oblivious to their plight, and they were eager to improve their lot. Labor groups, such as the Knights of Labor, had over 730,000 members by 1886, which included women, African Americans, and European immigrants. The fight to improve workplace conditions took decades, but as the U.S. economy grew, living standards did improve. The annual income of an industrial worker in 1890 was $486, but was $630 by 1910. Child labor was phased out, and the average work week in manufacturing dropped from 60 to 51 hours. Nonetheless, industrial accidents and safety measures were lapse. Repetitive tasks using high-speed machinery dulled concentration, and the slightest mistake could cause serious injury or death. In 1913, for example, 25,000 workers in the United States were killed as a result of workplace accidents, and nearly one million more were seriously injured. So although the relationship between capital and labor remained at odds, there were signs that America was inching towards a more progressive era. In 1912, Arizona, Kansas, and Oregon joined the limited roster of states that allowed women's suffrage. On May 2, 1912, New Yorkers flocked to Carnegie Hall to see composer-conductor James Reese Jim Europe and his all-black 125-piece orchestra. Ragtime became all the rage, and it was black musicians such as Jim Europe and Scott Joplin who were key figures in the introduction of black music to white America half a century before Elvis. The United States was very much in a transitional phase when the Great War engulfed Europe. As news of the fighting made its way across the Atlantic, many Americans counted themselves lucky that an ocean stood between the conflict and them. In August 1914, Wilson's ambassador to Great Britain, Walter Hines Page, expressed the sentiments of many Americans when he wrote, quote, Now and ever, I thank heaven for the Atlantic Ocean. Thank God we are out of it. End quote. For Wilson himself, the outbreak of war in Europe was quickly overshadowed by personal tragedy. Two days after Britain declared war on Germany, Wilson's beloved wife of 29 years, Ellen, passed away on August the 6th. Wilson was in the depths of despair. He contemplated suicide and told his closest confidant, Colonel Edward House, that he was no longer fit to be president. 
The son of a Presbyterian minister, Thomas Woodrow Wilson was born in Staunton, Virginia in 1856. A man of strong religious principles, Wilson's journey to statecraft came through academia. He earned a BA degree from Princeton before moving on to study law at the University of Virginia. From there, Wilson went on to earn his PhD from John Hopkins University and became a professor of history, jurisprudence, and political economy. Wilson excelled as a teacher and academic. He wrote widely and published several respected books on American history and government, where he made a name for himself as a social progressive. In 1910, he won the governorship of New Jersey where he implemented his progressive agenda, tackling corruption and creating a workers' compensation system. All of this culminated with Wilson being tapped as the Democratic nominee in the 1912 presidential election. With the support of thrice presidential candidate William Jennings Bryan, Wilson defeated Republican incumbent William Howard Taft and independent candidate Theodore Roosevelt. In the three-way race, Wilson won the electoral vote in a landslide with 435 votes. Roosevelt received 84, and Taft only 8. As president, Wilson's domestic policies focused on business regulation and tariff and tax reform. Under the title of New Freedom, Wilson set the direction of future federal economic policy. He knew the corporate merger movements of the 1880s had crippled open competition, and so he sought to prevent further merges by targeting the trusts. His first legislative victory came with the formation of the Federal Trade Commission, thereby establishing a body to investigate corporate practices and to provide the first central banking system since 1836. On the heels of the FTC came the Clayton Antitrust Act in 1914, which outlawed corporate practices such as price discrimination and interlocking directories. Interlocking directories being a practice in which competing companies share the same corporate executives. While in office, Wilson did what he could to prevent entangling the United States in European affairs, echoing the warning laid by George Washington some 200 years earlier. However, the America of 1912 was a different creature than the America of Washington's day. Improvements to transportation and communication made the world a smaller place, and pure isolationism was no longer feasible, if it were ever feasible in the first place. Just before taking office, Wilson had told an associate, quote, It would be an irony of fate if my administration had to deal chiefly with foreign problems, for all my preparation has been for domestic affairs, end quote. Despite Wilson's self-processed preference to neutrality, he was a firm believer in the Monroe Doctrine and overseas expansion. In 1904, he wrote, The Anglo-Saxon people have undertaken to reconstruct the affairs of the world, and it would be a shame upon them to withdraw their hand. Wilson shared in the belief that the United States had a special mission to spread democracy and protect the world from tyranny by offering virtues such as self-government, justice, and enlightened systems of law, in Wilson's words. In his first 4th of July speech, Wilson had remarked, quote, America has lifted high the light which will shine onto all generations and guide the feet of mankind to the goal of justice and liberty and peace, end quote. Wilson's moral standing aside, there was a darker side to the man as well. Having been raised in the post-Civil War South, a part of Wilson bemoaned the loss of Confederate values. 
during the 1912 election, he enjoyed the endorsement of prominent black leaders such as W.E.B. Du Bois and William Monroe Trotter. Yet upon taking office, his administration preserved racial separation in restrooms, restaurants, and government office buildings. He dismissed several black federal officials and believed segregation was, quote, not a humiliation, but a benefit, end quote. Perhaps the most infamous example of Wilson's racism was his decision to allow a screening of the controversial D.W. Griffith film, The Birth of a Nation, at the White House in February of 1915. Although it should be noted that the idea to screen the film did not come from Wilson himself, but from a former classmate and novelist, Thomas Dixon. According to his biographer, John Wilson Cooper Jr., Wilson despised the film, and left the screening without muttering a word. However, it should be noted that Wilson's racism was hardly unique for that time and place. The Democrats of Wilson's day had their roots in the post-war South, and they were driven by their hatred of Lincoln. As G.J. Meyer points out, Wilson's exposure to black Americans was in an environment that, even more from the North, viewed them as inferior and dangerous. Meanwhile, most whites preferred to ignore the existence of African Americans altogether, especially in connection with politics. The black leaders who endorsed Wilson would be disappointed when he refused to condone racial violence. And in keeping with his Confederate values, Wilson saw segregation as a state right, and did nothing to improve the lot of disenfranchised blacks. While it would be wrong to accuse Wilson of making things worse, his refusal to address civil rights and race relations will forever be a black mark on his resume. As the embers continued to spread across Europe, Wilson issued a proclamation of neutrality, which had been the traditional U.S. response towards European wars. He also asked Americans to refrain from taking sides, to exhibit, in Wilson's words, the dignity of self-control. Indeed, of the 92 million Americans recorded in the 1910 census, 10% listed German as their first language. In addition to the millions of immigrants from Germany and Austria-Hungary, those from Ireland, overwhelmingly Catholic and anti-British, and Russia, almost all Jews escaping Tsarist persecution, were more likely to favor the central powers over the Entente. But on the other hand, America's historical and moral connection to France cannot be discounted, and neither could its strong Anglo-Saxon connections to Great Britain connections which Wilson himself harbored personally. So although American sympathies were split, we need to be careful not to confuse this sympathy with outright cheerleading. Most Americans saw the war as a tragic misstep, and refused to prescribe blame to one side or the other. As Michael Nyberg writes, America saw Europe as the birthplace of modern civilization, and as landmarks in Poland, France, and Belgium went up in flames, Americans turned to charity and pity instead of anger and revulsion. In November 1914, U.S. Ambassador Walter Hines Page summed up the situation well. In a letter to his son, Page despaired at what was unfolding, writing, quote, The place where man rose from barbarism to civilization is now bankrupt, its best young men dead, its system of politics and of government a failure. The whole future of the human race is in the new countries, our country chiefly. Human life there isn't worth a yellow dog's life in more country. Don't bother yourself with the continent of Europe anymore. End quote. In the next episode, America will be faced with a new reality. 
Despite the firm stance of non-involvement, it soon became clear that America would not escape the war unscathed. The question then became, not if America had to get involved, but when. But before we head out the door, I wanted to leave you with an update about my whereabouts this past year, and what this may mean for the future of the show. Well, when I first began this here podcast back in 2014, I had just finished Teachers College and thought, hey, this would be a great way to keep myself occupied while I was on the job hunt. Well, I'm happy to announce that as of February 2019, I have been teaching full-time, which is why I have not been around much since the last episode in January. Turns out, teaching senior-level high school is a lot of work, and I got sucked into the bubble of lesson planning, marking, and extracurriculars faster than I expected. And when I do have some weekend downtime, the last thing I want to do is spend more time in front of a laptop. But I am getting better at the whole work-life balance thing, and I am aiming to returning to regular episodes sometime sooner rather than later. While I cannot say for sure when the next episode will be out, rest assured I have not forgotten about the show. I am committed to seeing this project through, but as they say, life can come at you fast. So before I head out, I do want to send a thank you to everyone who has sent compliments and concerns over the past year. I have been terrible at responding to messages, and I hope this answers the questions you may have been asking. And yes, this episode is currently being recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020. So to any future historians out there, you have my permission to use this as a source. That's it for this week. As always, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated. So if you have any questions or comments, you can follow the show on Twitter at Great War Podcast or email me directly, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. This has been episode 70 of The Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly. <laughs>